welcome listeners to the Banter Podcast by Brendan and Mark, and I'm Brendan and Mark's here with me as well, and this is the week ending of December the 1st, 2017. First, a couple of announcements, um, our new website's up and going, vetgurus.com, vetgurus.com, and um, you probably heard the reason why we called it Vet Gurus last week, and if you didn't, go and listen to the previous episode. And if you want to email us and ask a question or suggest a topic um, for a future podcast, vetgurus at gmail.com, vetgurus at gmail.com. And a special hi or a shout-out to all our new subscribers um, from this week. I put a post on AEMV, the Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinarians, on their Facebook page. So members have been joining up since then, So that especially um, in the US, um, but a few of the AEMV members from Europe as well. So the numbers are really starting to take off, Mark. Um, it's good news, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised. I know I like listening to what you've got to say, but I couldn't have believed there were that many people in the world who would also be in the same frame of mind. Well... I don't like listening to myself. That's why I have the um, headphones <laughs> not turned on feedback when I'm doing the podcast. But we'll, um, yeah, we'll keep going. But it's it's great to get um, more subscribers and listeners. And um, even better for those who listen on iTunes or subscribe via iTunes. It'd be great if you could do a little um, review for us on iTunes. Um, and um, then um, we may even read out your review, um, whether it's a good one or a bad one. We'll probably read, read it out regardless, <laughs> I think. Um, so we'll jump into the news because we, we've got, by the look of the list of things here, Mark, we've got a pretty big um, episode coming up as usual um, here. <laughs> so we've got a couple of um, news stories, and I did mention it to you before, the, um, before we started recording, but I didn't give you details about them. So the first one's... First one's a pretty serious one, and I just found a really interesting article that was um, that was uh, originally, I think, published in the Guardian out of the UK, and um, it's a bit of a sad story. But I'll, I'll just read some of the text from the actual website, and we'll I'll, I'll paste the uh, the link to the website in the show notes um, for those who want to actually read the original article. It's a lot longer than what I'm about to read out; just a bit of a summary and bits and pieces from it. So. Um, let's have a look. On 26th of September 2016, staff with the Atlanta Botanical Garden found a frog dead in his enclosure. His name was Tuffy and he was the last of his kind. And Tuffy was a rab's fringe-limbed tree frog um, and he was supposedly the last one and now that species is extinct. And reading from the article, the species only discovered by scientists in 2005 lived in Panama before it was wiped out by in the wild by habitat destruction and that dreaded disease. A lot of us exotic vets um, know about the chitrid disease. And the last one was heard calling in the wild in 2007. And an amazing frog, this, if you have a look at the pictures on the web, do a bit of a, a Dr. Google search. Um, it lived in the canopies of Panama's cloud forests and it glided through the air via the webbing connected to its, its toes. So a pretty amazing frog. Um, but I just like the tone of the article here and, 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 and the main thing was um, the actual 
Let's have a look. Let me click on here. The, the, the title of the article was Frog Goes Extinct and Media Yawns. Um, so reading again from the article, despite the fact that we can actually trace the extinction, God, it's the time of the day after a couple of drinks. Actually, I've only been having water, <laughs> so maybe I should have a drink. Um, the extinction of this tree frog to an exact date, it, it occurred with very little media interest. The list of what media outlets thought the story not interesting was probably more notable, including media outlets such as the BBC, The Sun and CNN. And the author um, says, if a frog such as this is not noteworthy, what does that mean for the reptiles, fungi, plants, insects or fish that vanish? What does it say about any species that doesn't grip the public's imagination? And, you know, I, I, I always found that when I worked as a zoo vet, it was very easy or a lot easier to get funding for for the cute and cuddlies, like the obvious ones here in Australia, the koalas, etc. But if you had a, a critically endangered reptile or even, even, even worse, according to the public, a venomous reptile, then trying to get funding for, for saving that sort of species was incredibly difficult. Um, but getting back to the article, amphibians are the canary in the coal mine for our current biodiversity crisis. Having been around for 370 million years, amphibians make dinosaurs look babyish, <laughs> the author says. Unfortunately, Tuffy will not be the last frog to vanish or the last species. How many more will depend on us? But it's hard to imagine anything changing when a story like Tuffy's is so easily swept aside. We can't care about what we don't know. So I thought it was a really good article about, um, you know, exposure to to the problems in, in the environment and, and, and what does get out there um, in the medium, what doesn't. Um, have you had any experience with, with trying to get some of these um, animals that are endangered getting um, funding or at least getting coverage for them, Mark? Well, I personally can't uh, lay claim to have a significant role, but I have um, a couple of friends who um, and um, social media contacts who are involved in the, the uh um, swift parrot and orange-bellied parrot work in Tasmania, and um, and I find that work really. I feel very um, passionate about it. I love the birds, um, but I feel ambivalent about it because uh, the work seems to be falling, you know, to to interested ecologists, naturalists who fund themselves through uh, social media, GoFundMe pages or whatever um and the actual you know government authority responsible for the care of these animals um seems largely to sit on their hands or worse um not kick up a stink when great swathes of uh forest are chopped down that have traditionally been their nesting hollows so so i i I, I worry about this. I worry about extinction, and I really worry about uh, the zombie species—the ones that are held together um, from extinction by just a few individuals. Um, and uh, and yeah, it does scare me that all these things are happening around us, and um, and they barely rate a ripple in the media pond. Um, and yet, I think. You know, whatever it is, 100, 200 years from now, they will be the stories that are remembered and, you know, what makes the headlines at the moment will just be cast to the ephemera of triviality. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I saw that article in The Guardian and I was touched by the, the, um, 
the poignancy of the last of a species um, and more so the fact that it, um, well, for many people who are in a position of power that those issues just don't seem to matter. Yeah, so what do you think about those, what did you call them, those zombie species, so that these species that were desperately trying to save, that the numbers are so low that perhaps we shouldn't be spending money on them I, I, and, yes. and, and maybe going for let's let's do we do we decide no we're not going to be able to save this species let's um leave them and spend money elsewhere so what's your thoughts on I, that? I think that I think there's a very strong uh, conservation argument to say that um, that the damage has been done to those species and uh, and the, the the and I suppose that's the attitude that the government takes that they're not going to invest um, uh, outlandish amounts of money in in a in what some people argue is a fool's errand that the damage has already been done and that money is much better spent um, in in uh, you know habitat protection in broad acre uh, conservation rather than the fine tuning of a species on the brink of extinction. Um, Still, it tugs at your heartstrings to see those birds. Um, there's a, um, a regular Twitter post about the orange-bellied parrots as they arrive in Tasmania, and I think um, you know the real excitement that you know a couple of female birds have actually made it there. Um, whether they actually nest, or um, you know, for all intents and purposes, a species that has only two reproductive females, it is hard to justify spending much money on. It's difficult. I mean, I, I, it's a story for another another podcast. But I, when I was working way back as a zoo vet, I, I was involved with uh, another species which was critically endangered. And that's a helmeted honey eater, um, the the emblem um, bird down here in in Victoria. Um, and um, I, I was around when we had a bit of a an issue with um a, a fair few of them dying off um from a mistake made um with the with the care of the ones in captivity and and it's it, gee it, it, I always struggled with should we keep spending all our time and money on this particular species or or no we need to try and save everything and and obviously uh, most of the time it was yeah I want to try and save everything but you end up spreading yourself so thin as a zoo and. And um, um, society, uh, that, that you'd need to start deciding maybe um, do we become speciesist and um, um, decide no, that species, we just have to um, ignore them and let them die out and concentrate on another one that sh we should try and um, try and save. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It's all depressing. It's all very depressing, so, especially like late on. A, um, come up, come, on tell me some day. news that brightens the day, Brendan. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. Well, that that yeah, very good segue there to the second story, which is, and you don't know what this is about, apart from the fact I told you it was about a tortoise. Well, we'll step back one little bit, and I'm going to talk about Saint Helena. Um, do you know where Saint Helena is, Mark? Uh, the um, the British Overseas Territory of Saint no, Helena. I don't. It's probably it's often regarded as probably the most um, remote um, island or one of the most remote islands in the world. It's a, it's off the west coast of Africa yes. uh, by a very long way, um, and um, it's pretty small. It's only sixteen by eight kilometers or ten by five miles, um, so it's a pretty small island. It's probably most famous for 
um, being the place they um, banished Napoleon to um, when he was exiled by the British. And as you know, I tend to like these sort of little trivia items. Um, um, but we're not going to talk about Napoleon. We're going to talk about the other famous inhabitant of St. Helena. Do you know who that is? I'm guessing it's a chelid of some description. It is Jonathan. Jonathan, who's perhaps the oldest living animal at the moment um, in the world. Um, they think he's probably at least 186 years old, um, Jonathan. Um, and the reason why I've, I've brought up Jonathan, and jo Jonathan's a Seychelles giant tortoise, um, and um, they can trace him back to when they, and like a lot of these um a lot of these um, animals that were um, grabbed from the wild and, and put in zoos, etc., they 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 don't know what age they were when they got them because they, he he may have been an adult when they when they grabbed him from the wild and eventually took him to took him to Saint Helena. So um, they're guesstimating that he's 186. I don't know where the 86 comes back, but they do know that. Um, um, they have photographs of him um, back to 1886 there, um, um, which was four years after he arrived in St. Helena. Um, but the article that I want to point out, and I will put a link to it, is um, um, probably the opposite sort of article to to the one um, we, were, we were talking about, um, which was a quite serious one from The Guardian. And this one was published in the New York Post, um, and personally, I, I, I don't know much about the New York Post. I don't know whether it's a, a very bit reputable magazine or not. Um, but um, let me just um, scroll over to this um, little article. It's a pretty short article, so I might just read the article in in full by Ilya Ustachewicz, I think. Um, if I've uh, butchered her name, I probably has, or his name. Um, and the title is, Turns out this 186-year-old tortoise has a gay lover. That is the um, <laughs> that headline, and I'll read the I'll read the article in full, and then we can have a little chat about it because it only goes for about five paragraphs. A 186 year old tortoise on Saint Helena has spent the past 26 years shacking up with a mate he's never bred with, and now his keepers know why they're gay lovers. It turns out the elderly reptile fell in love with another male tortoise, long believed to be a female named Frederica according to the Times in the UK. So they've they've quoted another article from the Times. Um, the pair have been inseparable since 1991 when the French consul gifted Frederica to the governor of St Helena as a mate for Jonathan. Their keepers only recently learned that Frederica was really Frederick following a closer examination of his shell. Jonathan is believed to be the oldest resident of the tiny UK territory, which is, coincidentally, struggling to legalise same-sex marriage. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a hot topic here in Australia where we just, um, where we just had the um, national vote for, um, um, for um, opinions on yes or no, um, and I think it was good. Um, I voted yes. Um, what was the, what was the um, final result from Australia-wide? 62% voted yes. Yeah, which I think is good. Now it's got to get through Parliament to, to legalise um, gay marriage in Australia and that's uh, probably another thing that they'll spend messing around with for a while. Um, but getting back to the article, um, the ageing tortoise has lived through much of the island's history since arriving in his 30s 
as a gift from the Seychelles in the 1880s. He's been photographed with monarchs, politicians and even prisoners held captive on St Helena during the Boer War of 1899-1902. Jonathan now has cataracts, has lost his sense of smell, but um, oh, I won't read this little last bit because I want to cross to I found the actual vet report. From <laughs> so that's that, that. There was one more sentence, and that was the end of the um, the article. But you know, I, I think you love the the term clickbait, don't you, Mark, for this sort of thing <laughs> and the, um, for that sort of headline. The tortoise has a gay lover, you know. Um, and it, it it really frustrates me when when. Um, when the media that um, the not all the media, but um, when I get asked to do a bit of media work, um, it's often the silly stories and the funny stories, and yeah, ha ha, vet treats a spider, vet treats a, a snake that just bit him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it can get a bit weary and can't it and frustrating dealing with, with dealing with that sort of thing and and i think this is sort of the total opposite of the first article we spoke to as far as um yeah it's a bit of um let's have a little bit of a laugh at jonathan's expense um which which is not a good thing to do i don't think but um let me cross to and jonathan has his own wikipedia um page um so i'll, I'll put that in um, i'll cut and paste that into our little show notes as well and let me just find the vet report and i thought this was hilarious and there's one more little thing that, that that sort of ties it all together i think um so this was the vets the island's vet um, I presume he just visits the island or maybe there's a resident um, vet on the island because I think the island only has about 4,000 um, permanent residents. Um, the vet issued the following report on Jonathan's health on 7th of December 2015. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't help laughing aloud when I read this, so hopefully I won't snigger when I'm reading this. Jonathan is alive and well exclamation mark i fed him yesterday as i do every sunday and his appetite was vigorous he's blind <laughs> he's blind from cataracts he has lost his sense of smell <laughs> and he cannot detect food <laughs> see i told you i'd crack up um and his fellow giants mug me and can detect the tiniest morsel dropped on the ground but he has retained excellent hearing i literally hand hand feed him with gloves in brackets, welders gauntlets. He knows my voice and so starts mouthing the air for food as I place it so that he bites off chunks as he has no idea where it is. This works well. Um, and the last, the last sentence, and I think this is an excerpt from the actual um, vet report, So, um, but it's on, on, um, on an official um, website for the island. Um, so the last sentence is from the vet. The vet report from December 2015. There is a chance that he'll either drop dead tomorrow or live until he's 250 and see us all off. Um, I wish I, I wrote my vet reports like that. <laughs> your, your dog's going to die tomorrow or it will, it will live till it's 20. Um, the feeding has improved him surprisingly. His once blunt and crumbly beak has become sharp and lethal. So he was probably suffering from micro deficiencies of vitamins, minerals, and trace elements. So there's the vet report. Isn't that amazing? It's a fantastic vet report, don't you think? Um, oh, and, and on this same page, there's a there's a picture of Jonathan there with with the quote, Jonathan one hundred. A picture of him, Jonathan one hundred and seventy six, and 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 quote 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 uh, marks moans when mating, end end quote. Yeah. 
Um, and the last bit I want to um, 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 say about Jonathan is is another report um, from from a naturalist, um, and I found this quite interesting. Um, and here's the quote: "Without suggesting that any scientific proof exists, Jonathan reaching such an exceptional age could be due to the effects of." Centella asiatica, locally known as monkey's ears, which is a common herb of pastures on St. Helena. The leaves are rounded and slightly resemble monkey's ears, hence the name, I suppose. It is apparently enjoyed by cattle and sheep and is abundant in the grass sward at plantation. According to my book, oh, here we go. Now I know why um, they've, they've got this quote in there. According to my book on herbs, <laughs> it has many medicinal uses in Asia. It is described as a rejuvenating diuretic herb that clears toxins, reduces inflammation and fever, and boosts healing and immunity. And here's the best bit. In China, it, used to be, it, it is used to make long-life tea, where a professor who drank the tea regularly, reputedly lived to the age of 265 and married 24 times. Perhaps this is what has helped Jonathan reach his grand old age. So there we go. And I'll, I'll, um, I just need to have a little sip of tea that I've just um, bought off the internet um, because I hope to live to 265. Um, I don't think my wife will be too happy if I marry 24 times but um it'd be nice to live to 265 so there's um the story about jonathan jonathan and um it was um yeah it, it um sort of lightened my day a little bit after reading the depressing story from the guardian about our little frog friend that no longer is um and it, it reminds me of another little story of a um of a of a, of a giant tortoise that i i've treated and it's still alive and he's probably 95 going on 100 now at one of the wildlife parks um locally that i still do a little bit of work for and it's uh, the fun of dealing with these um huge land tortoises um they we, he'd lost a lot of weight and we um took him to the um, local vet school to, to to work up his case and um they had to hire a uh, hire a little minivan to get him to the clinic because he was so big, and we we had to weigh him in the horse barn um, because it, there's no way would they be able to fit him on the scales in the um, in in the waiting room for the dogs and cats. So it's a it's the fun of dealing with some of these species that we deal with when we're dealing with exotics um, here. And I ended up putting an esophagostomy tube in him for about three months um, because he'd he'd lost a great deal of weight. Um, that um well we'll talk about it in another podcast and um we he, he he'd gone from 200 um and 50 kilograms to 200 kilograms so he'd lost a heap of weight um so the fun of dealing with these sort of animals so yeah there you go you need to get some monkey's ears mark and um brew brew a little bit of that up to um keep you going for a few more years mm, i'll have to put that link on the uh the uh, podcast website and um Maybe get a couple of bags made up. Yeah, well, I, no, maybe we should sell it. It's a way <laughs> to um, pay for our podcast hosting fees. We'll, we'll, we'll um, sell it, and um, we'll probably get caught going through customs with our wacky, wacky tobacco. Um, um, 
that um, we shouldn't be having. Um, yeah, so there we go. There's my two little news stories. Do you have any other news stories or um, do you want to jump over to your no, um, little review? I think I'm going to head straight to the review today. Um, Excellent. I'm, I'm pretty uh, – I'm, I'm, when I uh, mentioned this to you, I was um, really enthusiastic about um, doing it, but then afterwards I, I, uh, I thought, oh, Am I just going on about photography too much for some people? But anyway, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, one of the things that I've found really interesting, you know, that one of my um, uh, one of the other things that I do um, in that takes up a fair bit of my time is um, sit on the New South Wales Vet Practitioners Board, and in that role, I do uh, get to look at um, a lot of medical records. And one of the really interesting things that I could um, that I could uh, comment on is that uh, photographs are making an increasing they play an increasing role in those medical records, and in particular, they uh, they definitely lend a um, uh, uh, an added level of um, uh, accuracy, authenticity. Um, confirmation um when 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 looking at a medical record the the uh the medical notes the text is critically important the interpretation is absolutely essential um but um more and more um parts of the data collection are confirmed by the presence of digital images and as that is the case i've taken to uh, wandering around the hospital with a camera in my pocket um, and um, regularly uh, snap off a few images of interesting lesions and uh, interesting uh, characters it's also a, an opportunity to uh, get some images for social media um, so I thought it would be good to have a talk about the cameras that we use at work um, and in particular the one that I'm currently using and to maybe talk about some of its advantages and disadvantages. The one that I'm currently using is uh, the Olympus Tough TG4. Um, it's a, um, a point and click. Um, it uh, doesn't have any specific lumps or bumps on it it's easy to poke in poke in my pocket and carry around the the hospital it's no extra significant weight um, and the thing i like about it there's two outstanding things about this camera and then there's a couple of negative things the two outstanding things are first of all how tough it is for a for a little point and click um I have dropped this camera so many times um, that you would not believe I am pretty clumsy um, and it is rugged. Um, they call it the TG4 Tough um, and oh, that's what I use. They've just released the TG5, um, but the, the, uh, it's, the name is not a misnomer. It is really a tough little camera. And one of the reasons I originally got it was that it was waterproof and I was um, at that time looking to take some better underwater shots. When I dive, I like to get some uh, little invertebrates in some nice light and get some images. And so I got this camera for that purpose, um, but it actually has served um, uh, uh, probably a more significant role in being my hospital camera. And um, the other... the um, now, of course, in the hospital, it's got to be waterproof because 
it gets sprayed with all manner of body fluids and antiseptics and whatnot and um, any camera that uh, didn't have a degree of waterproofing would be very short-lived. The other feature of this camera um, that uh, really makes it um, uh, useful um, is the outstanding macro uh, facility. Now I've used um, a, um, a Nikon, a little Nikon point and shoot previously, Coolpix camera, um, and it had a pretty good macro. Well, I would reckon this camera is has a tenfold improvement on that Nikon, and uh, and so it gives me a great opportunity to take some really close up shots of lesions and um, and relatively, you know, particularly with uh, um, the patients that we're looking at, the birds and reptiles and. Um, uh, our small mammals, the images uh, that are most useful of eyes and um, uh, small structures, um, this camera gives me an excellent opportunity to, uh, to get those images. So I can't sing its praise highly enough, except for um, one particular thing that I've started doing lately is uh, trying, when we just bought a new microscope. Once again, trying to rack up those topics we can talk about in the future podcasts. Microscopes are, uh, um, you know, I spend a good deal of my day peering down the eyepieces of uh, microscopes. And so we've just gotten a, a new one this year and it's um, bloody excellent. Um, and when I was buying it, uh, I was almost convinced by the... Um, the uh, salesperson to invest several extra thousand dollars in an eyepiece microscope uh, camera, and um, thereby be able to um, to get uh, uh, images that we could show clients, for example. Um, and I was almost convinced, but um, I was able to get some uh, moderately useful images using my Olympus camera. But the most embarrassing thing is that my staff use their um, their uh, variously branded um, mobile phones, the cameras in those devices, um, they just butt them up against the eyepiece of the microscope and get outstanding images. Really, um, I, I, I struggle to see how even several thousand dollars for a camera um, would get me better images. So uh, certainly the Olympus that I use almost everywhere else takes a back seat to my iPhone when I'm looking down the microscope. Um, so uh, I can't recommend a camera in general enough for working in a veterinary hospital, and I certainly uh, hold the Olympus TG4 in high regard. Do I have to give it a score out of 10, Brendan? I think you do, Mark. <laughs> um, out of 10, come on. Well, I'm going to give it a 7.9. 7.9 out of 10. <laughs> there you go. Yes, I, I almost bought the um, TG4 myself um, and um, I was waiting for the TG5 to come out. I haven't bought either of them yet. I mean, the TG5 is just slightly better with everything. It's got 4K video as well. And I, Do you do you take video on it much? Um, on, on increasingly. Just... Increasingly I have been and, um, and, uh, and that's probably one of the main reasons I'd look at... Um, at getting the TG5. Um, I did have to get, and it, the camera unadorned 
uh, goes down to about uh, 10 feet um, and functions perfectly well. But when I'm diving, I've got a little case that it goes in and that gets us down to, um, to uh, you know, 20 metres, 20 um, odd yeah. metres down. I, th- I think it's supposedly 15 metre waterproof, but um, that would be pushing it without the without The case the, um, makes it so much yeah, better. The case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, they're... they're they're great, great little cameras. So, I mean, what I currently use, apart from the the iPhone that I shoot with, I I take in my my mirrorless um, Olympus um, into work to take um, more more detailed ones. And yeah, really push the clients to take photos themselves, and especially things that that you want to know whether they're improving. That you're not getting them in every day. It might be the eye that saw the, not necessarily just the exotic stuff. It's the dog and cat stuff as well. Take a picture of the bald patch on your dog. You know, um, send, take another picture in a couple of days. Send it to us. Um, and it's amazing how minute, how much you learn from just um, looking at the picture rather than just trying to describe it um the this related thing that we that i've only just um stolen from my youngest daughter is a um a little printer for a fuji um um, um that, you know those little fuji max um instant prints um instant cameras um you can buy a um a little printer um that spits out those little instant pictures um and it connects to an iPhone or to to um, Windows desktop, and um, I'm going to use that for taking the cute pictures for the new clients um, with their with their pets, and um, spit out the photo in front of the client, and then it can be um, stuck onto their little vaccination card, or they can go home with a picture of them and their their little lizard or their snake or their bird. So I think it's good PR. So. The nurses and everybody are fired up, up, up about um, doing that in the clinic, so I've got to get out there and start taking more pics for that. So I think those little little touches and that the clients love it and then 10 years down the track when you're showing them the picture of that um, that um, animal that you took 10 years ago, they, you can all have a good laugh about how everybody was a lot <laughs> younger um, 10 years ago when we took that picture. So, yeah, no, good pick, Mark. Um, I'll, um, I'll think of something for the next podcast as far as a, a piece of equipment or maybe a, maybe another book review and um, one thing we're planning to do is to do a um, do a Christmas spe- special so um, a, a holiday special um, late in December where we'll have um, lots of goodies that um, um, that we use in our clinic and it'll be a bit different the podcast for that one we'll, we'll probably be full of Christmas cheer when we do that podcast so um, be something to look forward to or not and um, I think each of us will review two or three um, clinic items that we use in, in, in our veterinary practices and also probably review a couple of books each. So um, that's something that um, might be a fun to listen to um, over the Christmas period or the holiday period. Um, so let's get on to our, our main topic for today. And it's um, um, for, well, it's similar similar species isn't it to what we did last week so we'll try and make sure we change next week and what we thought we'd talk about is um, head tilt in rabbits Um, and this is something that um, even even practitioners who don't see um, rabbits very often will will almost certainly be exposed to a rabbit that has a head tilt so we'll sort of work work and walk through our um, our workups for these and and um, talk about the common um, causes that we see 
um, Wiz had tilt in rabbits and now our treatment methods and um, the prognosis for for these and also um, have a bit of a chat about what, what treatments we think work and what treatments we think don't work and um yeah sort of a bit of an overview of head tilting rabbits you see i think you mentioned off air didn't you um just before we started mark you've got a one or two head tilt rabbits in your clinic at the moment is that correct we do at the moment um we uh the one of the interesting things i find about these cases is that um they are regularly come to us with clients that are First of all, very passionate, but I'm really devastated that the, there's an awful lot of emotion that goes into those first consults. Um, and I think um, one of the things that uh, I try to convey to my staff is um, that those first bits of communication about this topic with the client need to be relatively you need to be relatively confident. We often have clients come in with head tilt rabbits that are ready to consider euthanasia, um, and um, and I think uh, just a, a little bit of surety and um, a little bit of uh, accuracy in being able to predict what's likely to happen um, often puts these people who are really passionate and care about their rabbits, uh, puts their mind at rest and starts that diagnostic process, Brendan. Yes. And, well, we won't talk about the signs because what do we see? We, we, we see the head tilt pretty obviously in these, these animals um, and, and varying degree of nystagmus um, with them as well. Um, so we might skip over the signs and get, get into the juicy bits. Um, and, and the main thing I sort of really concentrate on and, and, and chat to vets and, and, and students and um, technicians, nurses about is um, making sure that you do a proper workup on these and don't, I don't like people jump into the shotgun therapy of just deciding, oh, it's probably these two, one of these two conditions that we'll talk about in a, in a moment and, and just send them home on blanket treatment to potentially cover everything because uh, I, I, I like one. I like to get a diagnosis, and two, we're just guessing that 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 our treatment potentially did anything anyway. And at the end of the day, if that animal does or doesn't recover fully or or to partial extent from that that head tilt, what have we learned? Nothing. Um, we don't know which treatment worked of the shotgun treatment we used, and 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 we're back to square one if that animal deteriorates and goes backwards. So, I think the important bit is um. um Doing, doing a workup on them and trying to narrow down or at least eliminate some of the potential causes. And the two causes that we mainly see um, for these head tilt in rabbits are, are um, inner slash middle ear um, conditions, um, so so peripheral um, changes. And the other big one, the one that most people think about probably before that 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 one I just mentioned is um, e caniculi or encephalitisoan um, um, disease, which is... Um, um, you know, I think the proper classification for it is it's a it's a parasitic fungus, um, and it was reclassified about ten years ago. I think as being a parasitic fungus rather than a microsporidian parasite. Um, although, if you read over the literature, it, it, they may interchange all those um, particular terms with them. But I think that gives a hint towards you know maybe there's something in the future that we'll be able to work out as far as potential um, treatment regimes now that it has been classified as a, a fungal organism that maybe we should be concentrating on thinking about the sorts of medications or treatments that, that potentially hit that. So my, 
going back to, to, to the workup, my standard workup for these are, are, are the obvious basics at the start, getting a full history of that, that patient and that client, ignoring the head tilt in that, in that rabbit and, and looking at all the other potential problems that that rabbit may have in front of me. So again, it's getting back to the, the, the dog that comes in with fleas jumping all over it. You know, it's got fleas, but, but ignore that and, and detect the heart murmur and the ear problems and the cushions disease and everything else that you may have become blinkered with and not looked at if you had of, um, had of, um, just concentrated on those fleas there. So it's getting a detailed history. Um, it's, it's the, the important bits about the head tilt. Obviously, ha- did it come on suddenly? Um, was it slow, progressive? Um, um, is this the only rabbit in, in the household? Was there any sort of stressful event that may have um, triggered it off? Um, those types of history bits that you really see potential keys that that might hint towards one thing or another. Obvious ones like is it shaking its head? Then we do as part of that full clinical examination of that animal. We're obviously going to we will concentrate on 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 checking those ears and and palpating and looking and, and using our otoscope and looking down the ears as best we can with that animal awake and in some rabbits you can get a decent view down those ear canals but but rabbits have extremely sensitive ears and 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 I find that a lot of rabbits I I can't get a great look down to to that eardrum without um, sedating them or, or anesthetizing them so Usually my workup then, then we'll, we'll, we'll be um, stating to the client that we need to admit the animal for the day. We'll run basic bloods on it. We will sedate or or have or anaesthetise that animal. Um, I'll be looking properly down each um, ear canal with them, and usually with with probably ninety five. To ninety nine percent of them, I I I um, also do survey radiographs of the head because I want to look and see what's happening with those tympanic bulla to see whether there's any changes, um, chronic changes with the bones there, or we can see an obvious um, pus filled uh, tympanic um, bulla there um, that that points towards the. Um, peripheral causes with them um if i had a ct scan um, i'd probably be doing a ct of the head and we do have a clinic that we send some to to get a full head ct with them um and then then the next decision is whether or not we send off for an e-caniculi test um so we might talk about that in in two secs what's your standard sort of um work up for these as far as that you, your basic diagnostics for them mark um apart from what i've mentioned there is that fairly similar to that have i missed anything um <laughs> as usual not brendan um and um and the, i suppose the only thing i would um add weight to is that we you know you were talking about maybe 95 percent of them um getting those survey radiographs um i think that um we would we would be even higher than that we find those radiographs to be um exceedingly useful and uh, i suppose it's since digital technologies come along that um, I feel much more confident that we're getting images that we can interpret as having real changes between the the, um, the tympanic bulla and even sometimes um, uh, looking at the canals themselves there's um, parts of the radiograph that uh, spark us to pay particular attention to particular parts of the anatomy of the ear so um, we're we're very keen to get them um, radiographed once we have sedated them and done a thorough examination with our otoscope yeah and 
and the good news is some of them, as soon as you sedate or knock them out, or even in the consultation, you you you, you have a tentative diagnosis of a of an inner or, or middle ear condition because you see lots of pus in that ear canal, or, or you have a look down there and you have a ruptured eardrum there. Um, so the good news with that is um, that 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 um, we have something potentially to treat that we might be able to fix with those particular ones. Um, um, though um, jumping around a little bit um, here, I'd, I'd, I'd be trying to um, take a sample of those um, and get in a culture and sensitivity. The frustrating thing is that um, I find that um, often we might be spending the client's money to do that culture and, and um, the, the particular organisms that are in there are quite um, difficult to to grow in culture so we might get a negative result or we have contaminants in there but you do get the odd one or I do get the odd one that we get an interesting result where we um, may have been picking up a particular antibiotic for that um, ear infection that um, that um, the bug's resistant to so it, I still think it's certainly worthwhile to do that ideally. Um, I'd often be flushing those out um, gently and, 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 and fairly vigorously flushing them out because I find a lot of them, the pus is that typical cheesy sort of rabbit um, pus there. So it takes a fair period of time to sort of break down that cheesy um, toothpaste. Here we go. We got, we're talking about toothpaste again. <laughs> um, that toothpaste pus and um, I'm flushing it until um, it, it's, it's clear. Um, assuming that we've just got this in, in a mental ear condition um, and then um, putting it on lots of pain relief, putting it on antibiotics and we can, perhaps go into a little bit more detail about the potential choices with those products in a minute um, and rabbits are extremely sensitive with their ears as I, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago so making sure that we do have lots of pain relief on board um, with them um, post post that flush because they I think they'd be pretty damn sore um, with those ears um, and I find that a fair number of those ones where I've diagnosed some of those um, inner or middle ear infections that they do do have a pretty um, 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 dramatic recovery over the next few days or few weeks. Not that they may not relapse, but um, we get some pretty good results. And I think that's the the the, the, the key factor there is we're, we're trying to diagnose what, what the particular condition is rather than just pop putting this um, animal on, doing a consult and just putting it on some um, antibiotics and potentially putting it on for on, on the medications that may or may not help um, with, with the EC encephalitis-owned um, condition as well. Um, any other comments about what you'd do for the um, um, ones you diagnose, uh, the middle or inner ear ones? Some of them are, 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 are very deep-seated infections and we have an empyema of that um, ear um, that, that can be hard to clear up and um, I end up having to take them to surgery where we do a an ear resection you know there's various you know, it might end up being a full total ear canal ablation or partially canal ablation because it just keeps filling up and the ear canals chronically narrowed um, and um, in, um, in if we're getting desperate we may have to end up um, doing um, even more radical surgery and, and attacking that tympanic bulla as well. Mark. And then uh, with the exact uh, um, process that you've described um, uh, is one that I regularly find that we get to the same point where we've got to contemplate um, those um, more invasive and final surgeries um, uh, 
to to alleviate the problem. And as you mentioned initially, the the probably what we're seeing in most of the um, external canal might not, you know, the structures of the inner ear um, and the labyrinth are where the the uh, the problem is, um, and so sometimes the bugs that we see on the outside, the degree of um, infection, the treatments that we do on the outside might not necessarily, the external canal might not necessarily um, solve those problems uh, deeper within the, the anatomy of the ear. So we do take some of these rabbits to TECAs or um, even bullar osteectomies and, um, and they're exciting surgeries. Exciting is one way of putting it, isn't it? They can be a bit of a challenge um, doing those surgeries, yeah. Um, and, so and they're challenging because um, some of the side effects are, um, are just the things we well, <laughs> besides the ultimate side effect. Um, <laughs> some of the side effects are the things we're trying to avoid, um, the things we're actually trying to treat. If uh, um, um, you know the rabbits can develop. Um, uh, nervous complications from the surgery um, that egg, that uh, may aggravate or exacerbate the existing neurological problems. Um, so it can some there are there is there is a potential to be frustrated. But my general experience is that um, that that's not the case. That more you know much more frequently than not, um, the rabbits are, are have much better quality of life and their problems are more likely to be resolved in those severe cases that we need to do surgery on if we go to surgery. And um, you did remind me of one of the one of the signs or, um, that we do see in these cases, and that's that um, yeah the facial nerve paralysis we get with some of these, or even the the rictus that we see with them. So that twisted sort of sneer look that you see on a rabbit because of that um, um, nerve um, passes pretty close or around underneath that tympanic bulla, if I remember correctly, it may be incorrect. Um, so we can end up with um, signs of um, paralysis um, on one side of the face. So um, looking at these rabbits from front on, I think, um, is the best way of trying to see whether or not we have any signs of that that happening with them. Or the owner might even report that their rabbit um, you know, drops food out of one side of the mouth, for instance, or you see a slight slobbers on one side of the mouth. Um, um, with those particular um, individuals, yeah. Do you do you see that very often, Mo? It's only only occasionally. It's not one of the more common things that we see with these rabbits. Um, and I don't know whether that's because um, the 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 ones that we get brought to us, the ones that we have with us at the moment, they're um, they they're really quite traumatic. It's not an easy thing to get them calm and and to get a nice symmetrical view of their face. They they their their view of the world is such that up is just always over there, and they fly, throw themselves around quite violently at times, um, and uh, and so some of those subtle signs may well be hidden. Um, I do think it's uh, um, one of the things that uh, I I commonly find helps when we're at that stage, you know, just during the physical examination, is that I think there's some feedback from the the uh, are the tactile receptors in the rabbit's body that um, can lessen the overriding sense of not being upright. Um, so I think often these rabbits benefit from being in a 
you know, a relatively small box where each side would touch the side of their body, um, they tend to throw themselves around um, less furiously when that's the case. Um, my nurses have gotten quite good at creating little uh, rabbit uh Donuts, exactly of various constructions, and um, and they have aquatic. Uh, you know, they've got their favourite towel that they think uh, rolls up into the most suitable form for the rabbits. Um, but I think uh, it's important to pay attention to that nursing care as well. Brendan, I was going to ask you. Uh, we were talking. I know we are jumping around a little bit, but I was interested in. Um, uh, your comments about microbiology because uh, our micro has been a, a little bit unrewarding as well in these cases um, and uh, and and I, I'm embarrassed to admit that we probably don't um, you know when we've got the um, total ear canal uh, ablation type surgeries we will regularly uh, send material off for culture from those ones but for many of the others where when we might take a smear or and um, we've been a bit disappointed with the ones you know the uh the results we get from the the culture and sensitivity testing we do um has there been particular species of bacteria that jump out to you in the cultures that you've done that have been successful yeah i think i've got had a similar experience as as you do so it can be a bit frustrating um not not off the top of my head um, um as far as what particular species that that we may get there um what i tend to remember is very occasionally i i, I have one that um, is really dramatic with the sensitivities and it comes back as yeah resistant to the typical drugs that we might consider using for them but i'm always a bit aware that hey is is this a species that um is causing the problem or is it just a secondary you know invader there in the canal and as you sort of hinted at beforehand it, it may be something the actual bugs that are that that, that incited that um problem at, at um, are deeper in there um so uh, yeah i think it's a frustrating um process there i still recommend it to the clients um and because I do get that odd one where, where we come back with a sensitivity that, that might indicate we need to change things around or think about something differently or so we do get something weird and wonderful. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a challenge, I think, yeah. Um, and jumping around, um, you were mentioned about um, the, the supportive care and the nursing care. That, that little um, bit you just spoke about um, reminds me of a, a bonded... Um, pair of rabbits where one of them developed severe head tilt and um, a really um, observant owner and um, they um, made a little um, um, series of towels into a donut to sort of fence this this rabbit in um, uh, um, for those first week or two when, when it still was rolling um, with, with, with the head tilt and um, its little bonded partner, they had it on, on video um, um, its little bonded partner, if if the rabbit happened to roll and get out of its little dam of um, um, the donut of of towels, um, would shuffle up to its little mate and and gently just keep shoving it and pushing it back into its little towels um, and and wrap the towels around it again. It was amazing. So, so its little um, bonded friend um, was helping with the supportive care with that rabbit. So yeah. it was great. How cool is that? Yeah, so I think it's and and we strongly recommend a, a bonded friend for all these for all these um little wabbits. Yeah, so um yeah, so the two main causes that we we 
think um, we see in our practice anyway, and I think most most people see lots of rabbits um, um, that that cause these head tilter, the um, the peripheral inner slash middle ear problems, and the other big ones, zooencephalitis, caniculi or the dreaded EC. So we should um, spend the rest of our our ten minutes or so that we might keep going for talking about. Um, um, the pros and cons of EC and the controversies over the treatment regimes and 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 what we do, uh, practical approach to these ones. And well, I suppose I could start off and and yeah, I, I think I'm finding that I'm 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 treating less and less for the suspected EC conditions. Um, for those who don't don't know the, the the story about EC and its potential treatment, um, the, the it all goes back to I think one published paper where where they um, infected rabbits with um, the organism and um, some control rabbits and um, then they treated some of them with fenbendazole, which Panicure is a um, um, drug we use here in Australia for it, um, and um, they seemed to respond for it and the dose um, ended up. Being what twenty milligrams per kilogram, if I remember correctly, once a day for thirty days for a month or so. Is that right, mate? That's exactly um, right. And um, so, since that um, paper was published, basically everybody ended up um, using that as a potential treatment regime. And the difficulty with that was based on the, that one particular study, and there hasn't been much, if any at all, followed up since then. And um, we're sort of grasping at straws as far as, you know, does this particularly work? Do we need to use that particular dose rate um, for this organism? Will it Does it really work? Should we be treating for 30 days or, or three days or one day or should we not be treating at all? And I think one of the key things that I think about the head tilting rabbits is regardless of the cause, and there are other causes apart from these two that probably cause most of the conditions, and that can be Obvious other ones like trauma, the rabbit was dropped or fell or one of the children dropped the animal. So trauma, uh, head trauma, intracranial disease. Um, I suppose we could think about things like um, uh, brain tumours. I, I don't think I've ever diagnosed a um, head, head tilt um, caused by a brain um, tumour in a rabbit. Um, but I'm sure that, that there'd be ones out there um, that, a lot of these conditions um, will potentially get better with time anyway. And um, I think part of that process is not just that the body heals itself, that also um, with these brain injuries um, or these um, neurological type diseases, the, the animals learn that, hey, my, my head's on a tilt and and stop doing it. And over time, they learn, learn to 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 not tilt the head anymore and so they rewire their mechanisms and then and rewire their brain and learn to learn to cope so i think we're fooling ourselves sometimes if we think that our treatment is the only potential reason why this particular rabbit has improved from its head tilt because time a tincture of time and and that animal may be rewiring its brain is part of that whole process so it, it can be can be a challenge trying to work out you know are, are we helping or are we just um um taking the glory for, for for what nature is doing yeah um yeah so what's your what's your take on the ec testing mark if you want to sort of i'll put you put you on the on the spot here um um can you briefly outline the the 
the main tests that sort of done uh, or provided worldwide um, for for EC. And um, what does it mean if you get a positive <laughs> or a negative on on that test? Well, if I if I remember correctly, it's an ELISA, um, and um, and uh, well, the significance. Um, I remember reading the that one of the papers might have been in the early 90s in the AVJ, which uh, uh, provided serological, uh, was a serological survey of wild rabbits in Western Australia. Um, and that was an ELISA as well. And, uh, and that paper reported that wild rabbits in Western Australia uh, were positive 60% of the time, I think, if I remember it correctly. Um, and so... Uh, does it mean when you test an individual rabbit that has a head tilt and it uh, it tests positive? Well, it probably means it's one of the. If we tested all the rabbits that we get to see, we probably might find that um, thirty to sixty percent of them would test positive. And would the E. caniculi rabbits? Would more of them test positive? I have my doubts. Um, that would be an interesting um, research project for someone to do, I think. And I think that highlights the fact that we just don't know enough that, um, as you said uh, before, that um, there's lots of uh, initial um, starting points that have not been um, reviewed sufficiently or um, critically appraised or uh, had the questions asked of why particular drugs were used. Um, and um, and in the way of many of these things, once they get into the literature, they become, um, they become, they acquire a, a truth that's maybe beyond the strength of the initial evidence. I did say to you before we started recording that I'm perfectly happy to, um, rather embarrassingly, admit that um, the the that I have been um, using fenbendazole far less frequently in these cases, and it's probably. Once again, I'm embarrassed to admit this. The clients who come in who um, who have done their Doctor Google work and um, come to me to get their panicker um, straight off the bat, um, that I sometimes struggle to convince that uh, it's sensible to do a wider workup and uh, get a more specific answer. And I do have a number of cases in mind over the last few months where we've sent them home with fenbendazole, and I. To, to be honest, I, um, obviously that's not good medicine and I'm embarrassed to admit it, um, but um, it also exposes those rabbits to the side effects of those drugs, which are, are not, um, not uh, inconsiderable, particularly, I think, um, the bone marrow suppression and um, potential for hemorrhage, um, and uh, particularly with these 28, 30-day courses, um, the risk of side effects is is not inconsiderable. So I, I hereby announce that I'm going to be a much uh, sterner veterinarian and uh, when my rabbit clients come to me with their Dr. Google notes, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be much firmer in, um, in insisting that we don't automatically treat their rabbit with uh, fenbendazole. So what are your comments about a negative test for E. caniculi in a rabbit? What does that um, make you think about? <laughs> um, oh, now you're making me think about um, the significance <laughs> of um, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. Um, 
I te- yeah, I've really put you on the spot there. I, te- I tend to <laughs> make that a um, – so I, I view the value of the EC te- the ELISA EC test as a positive, just tells you that rabbit's been exposed to that particular organism and um, probably do- – and, and certainly doesn't confirm that it has an active infection with um, causing the head tilt in that animal. But a negative test, I think, tends to start or, or, or reasonably – strongly i suppose um tends to point towards maybe this animal hasn't got the head tilt um due to e caniculi so i think a negative test tells you a lot more than a positive test in um f- um for what it's worth with that particular test testing regime there um there are some papers out there looking at um trying to compare other other uh, other um other tests like electrophoresis and, and immunoglobulins trying to and, and correlating that with the EC test, trying to work out that, hey, do we have an active infection in this particular animal causing EC or not? So, but but I think the jury's still out about the whole, you know, ha, um, how important this EC is and, and, and um, how many of the head tilts are caused by it. Um, and I do think that we're, pro- and like you've sort of hinted at, that we're probably over-diagnosing that um, the head tilts are due to E. e caniculi um, in these animals. Um, but... Somebody much smarter than me, and maybe maybe smarter than you, probably not, um, will end up doing a study and um, um, working out the whole process of um, what we should do with EC to to um, diagnose it um, um, thoroughly. I mean, my my take on it is that um, you can't you can't prove that that particular rabbit did have a head tilt due to EC unless, one, you get the brain out of that rabbit and you see that it has um, the caniculi parasitic fungus in the brain, but not even that because you may see that particular fungal parasite or that parasitic fungus in in the brain of an animal, but it's not causing problems with a head tilt because you need to see that that granulomatous reaction in the section of the brain that's involved with with head tilt, um, causing causing that um, um, that particular sign. So you'd need to find the lesions in the area region of the brain um, by the by the fu- um, parasitic fungus. And how many of the brains of these rabbits do I get out? Um, very, very, very few, um, as opposed to taking lots of brains out of rats um, with pituitary neoplasms, which is quite good fun to to look at those and the high incidence of those, which means that's another topic we need to talk about in a future podcast, um, pituitary neoplasia in, in, in pet rats. So I think the whole EC bit is very, a very... Um, problematic and, and twisted sort of road um, and we just don't know a lot you know like a lot of these things we just don't know and yeah that whole pressure of um, the client comes in with some particular um, medication um, not just for abbots and EC but lots of conditions I um, mean in in especially I find more often in the unusual pets and the dogs and cats and they you sort of, you know, I take a big sigh and when I see the client and they bring in these sheets and sheets of papers that they've printed off and they say, I've been doing a bit of research. Um, and that's when I think I reach for the coffee machine and I think, here we go, here we go. Um, and 10 minutes later, they're, they're on page two of, of 20 pages of, of um, their di- diagno- home diagnosed um, um condition um for that particular thing so the one thing i would say about it though is that um 
it is a, and I'm once again echoing you that um, I take a deep breath, but I take a deep breath because um, often the people that have gone to the trouble to, you know, get a swathe of paper together to um, start the discussion, um, they're, they're usually, not always, but usually highly motivated and um, and once you've had your coffee and you've um, uh, taken the time to listen to their point of view, if if you explain things reasonably, most of the time they're the ones who will do the the, the culture and sensitivity, and the and and then if that doesn't work, they'll look at the surgical option. Um, so while while a, um, a big sheet of of uh, a big um, Group, but you know that they've got the staples in. They've got the paper clips on the top. They've got the the uh, little um, post-it notes out the side to highlight the separate bits. While they can be a little bit um, wearing, um, I often find that that they're amongst the best clients once you've um, had a chance to talk to them. So. I reckon yeah. they're worth working with. I think you're right there, Mark. I've been a little bit cynical there, although I, th- I think um, <laughs> my clients that come in with the paper clips or the staples usually have them in their noses. Um, so I think we've got <laughs> a different demographic um, um, in in my particular area. But but they're some of your best clients, aren't they? That those ones that that do spend a lot of time and they do worry about their 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 their, their animals and. Um, they they end up being the ones that potentially end up being bonded for for the life of their pet to you, yeah. Um, otherwise, what do you do? Well, they're the ones that if they ignore you completely, regardless of whether they're bringing in all that Doctor Google stuff, they they're the clients that you need to start thinking about sacking and saying, look, we can't we can't deal with you anymore um, because we can't provide the services that, that you require. Um, we're not a good fit for you and you're not a good fit for us. Um, perhaps it would be best if you um, considered um, trying another vet clinic um, for your services. And, and, you know, it's very rare that I end up saying that to a client, but um, um, I think you need to be sort of honest and, and, and the client needs to have a trust in you and, and vice versa. And if they don't, then then perhaps both of you need to have a divorce and you go your own ways and everybody's happy um, ever after. Otherwise, if it's, you know, Mr. Smith with his cat that um, you see once a month and Mr. Smith goes down back to um, back to the... Um, Pokey, pokey club and complains to everybody about Brendan the vet um, and complains about the account to the um, nurses out front at reception every time he comes in. When I see that Mr Smith is coming in next week, um, I've already got a headache. Um, so I should be um, saying to Mr Smith, maybe go somewhere else and um, we'll both be happier in the long run because we've got enough stress on our lives as it is, haven't we, as veterinarians? Um and we 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 always have difficulty saying no, don't we, um, to 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 clients and no to treating that other animal, no to trying to save that animal that maybe maybe the quality of life is not there. Yeah. So getting back to our topic in hand, gee, and we better finish soon because we're already at um, what seventy minutes here already. So we've gone over the sixty minutes again. Um. um what do we do with these animals? Um, so yeah, I do. I do find that it's not um, 
it's not a, a death sentence for them, as you mentioned at the very start of our discussion on head tilt with them, that the clients may be, may be in tears or in a panic when they come in with their rabbit with really severe head tilt that may, the rabbit may be also rolling um, when it tries to move. Um, so it's it's providing all that supportive care while, while we try and um, um, let that animal recover, um, plus or minus the treatments um, based on what we've diagnosed with it and, and reassessing it. And yes, I do find that a fair number of them um, recover. A, a, a large percentage of them will, will have a good quality of life. Um, some of them still have a severe head tilt and some of those cope very well long term. And I've had some where they almost have a 180 degree head tilt and yet that that particular individual manages to cope with it where I might have another rabbit that only has a mild head to grip tilt of you know 20 or 30 degrees and yet that particular individual may not be quite as hardy or coping um, and it ends up going into gut stasis and and just ends up being a miserable rabbit that ends up being euthanized um, do you have a similar sort of um, situation with some of your 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 head tilt rabbits some do fantastic um, regardless of how severe it is and and some some have I, do. I find some have a complete recovery and then they relapse um um, regularly and, and others um, um, I suppose the greatest percentage of them they re, they the, of the severe head tilt ones they they recover but not a hundred percent but they recover to a point where they're fully functional rabbit and an apparently healthy happy animal um, and they and I think the other thing about those recovered ones in my experience is I think there is you were talking about the process of compensation where um, the brain becomes rewired, the, um, the brain starts paying attention to different signals rather than those coming from the faulty vestibular apparatus. And, um, and I find that those rabbits might get back, you know, 95% normal. But when they're stressed, um, uh, they'll often display signs, um, you know, that might slip them back down towards, like, it looks like they're relapsing. They might be 30 or 40% bad when they're stressed. But I think that's... Um, the altered attention the brain's paying to different signals coming from different uh, sensory inputs. Um, often when those stresses uh, finish, the rabbits return to, you know, largely normal life. And as you said, one of the um, really, I don't know, I find it a fascinating part of being a vet who looks at rabbits is that they each have their own individual personality and and they have varying levels. They're, they're all... Um, surprisingly stoic but some are just like so um you know could cope with anything and others cope for a while and then then uh, get into trouble and as you say they they are anxious or they worry or um uh, they don't eat enough they don't eat regularly enough they get into gut stasis problems and and just fumble along until they uh decompensate completely but there are some i have some Patients that uh, have, have coped for several years with um, significant head tilt and, and they eat and, um, and do all the normal things, they play. Um, they're, yeah, they're fascinating cases and, uh, and it's good not to give up on them. Yes, they're... Um we see a lot of them. Yeah, we see a lot of head tilt rabbits. So, um, and it's always a bit of a challenge to try and work out. But it's going back to basics, isn't it? Trying to trying to work out what what's the most likely thing, and then that's going back to the basics of doing some 
diagnostics and not just doing that blanket treatment. And that's the thing that I hate with, um, or dislike rather than hate, um, um, <laughs> that, um, that, that vets aren't going back to, to their basic, um, principles of trying to work out or at least eliminate some of the other causes that might be happening with the head tilts in them. But yes, head, head tilts in rabbits. But we promise that next week, our next episode will not have a main topic on rabbits we'll have to start thinking about whether we'll do a reptile or a small another small mammal or or perhaps a little birdie maybe we should do a bird problem mark and you can take the lead with that one since you're you're more experienced with the with the avian species than i am um i have a couple i have a couple of topics i think will be great brendan i'm i'm onto it already Good, and um, we'd also like um, you, our listener, or even better, our subscribers, to send us an email and suggest a topic, or even even send us a a, um, a news item that you find humorous or interesting or or, or controversial. And um, easiest way to get in touch with us is vetgurus at gmail.com or have a look at that website vetgurus.com, which will link straight to our our little um. Um, blog posts that um, um, has a listing of all our previous um, our, our podcast, and you can, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you'll see that we um, were slowly degenerating over the over the last five or six podcasts. So I don't know what it's going to be like when we get to podcast number number a hundred, um, but um, I look forward to it. So we will hopefully. and recommend us to your vet friends and your vet nurse technician friends and vet students.